The Dudecast is brought to you by NHS Employers in partnership with the NHS Leadership Academy. It's, um, it's a tremendous pleasure for me to be here um, with all of you. And I've, I'm really grateful to Paul and Karen for having extended the, um, the day-long invitation to me to be here because now I feel like I'm among a much larger group of friends. Um, so thank you for letting me be here with you to explore and do some of this uh, very important work um, that we all do together. So my invitation as we're getting started here is for all of us to stay open uh, pay and to pay attention to what is occurring and what might occur here with us. Okay? So if I had to turn this whole thing into a bumper sticker, or maybe two bumper stickers, this is what it would say. Transformation requires moving into the unknown, purposefully into the unknown. And the only thing we can count on is that we'll be surprised. So what I hope to do here over the next 45 minutes together is to uh, provide some insight into a particular way of orienting ourselves to our work as OD professionals. Now given the range of experience that's here in the room, um, this may be a confirmation or a validation for some of you, for some of us. And for others, um, it'll be novel. It'll be something new, maybe something we haven't thought about or talked about before. And quite happily, we're going to hang it all on the NHS um, competency framework. Okay, when Paul and Karen showed this to me as we were talking through what we wanted this session to be about, it became very clear that there was a logical progression here that made perfect sense in light of um, the various pieces of the talk um, here this afternoon. So uh, we've already spent a really big chunk of our day today looking at the ways we might manage what I would call the paradox of transformation and sustainability. Right? It's, it's, it creates conflict and turmoil in, in the system. This differentiation creates the energy for change. And it makes, a, makes it possible for a new level of coherence to emerge, something we hadn't seen before. And I, I will, again, Nicole, come back to this idea about difference and differentiation a couple more times, so hopefully it gets, it gets clearer each time I repeat myself. <laughs> so that's purpose. Right? And that's kind of a small slice of, or, or the way I want us to think about our purpose as OD practitioners, at least for the purpose, at least until, until 4 o'clock this afternoon, that we are holders of paradox on behalf of and in support of our clients. So practice. The willingness that we display to be in paradox, in these tensions, has important implications for our practice. It takes us into an appreciation for complexity and I think toward a diet, what's what we call the dialogic approach to our OD work. And it's these things that I'd like to spend the next few minutes um, exploring as deeply as we can um, in the time that we have. 
both complexity, at least as we think about it in this field, and the dialogic approach to things are built on the ideas that A, order continuously emerges in nature without planning or control, and B, the world or our reality is something that's not objectively independent of us, but is a product of how we interpret it. So let's start by looking at complexity. When we talk about complex in our vernacular, in everyday language, we are usually referring to something that's challenging or hard to understand or complicated, right? For our purposes here, complex and complicated are two very different things, okay? And a, a simple shorthand that I put on this is to think of building an airplane as complicated, okay? It has an answer, it has a right answer at the end, it's a, and there's, a, there's more or less a clear path to get to that endpoint. On the other hand, predicting the weather is complex, right? Because there are multiple inputs into that system, and we never know really where it's going to wind up. Anything that we do that is predictive is at best a guess. Right? We're getting better at those guesses, but really, it's a guess. And if we're working in complexity in our organizations, the biggest challenge for us, I think, is this idea that things are fundamentally unpredictable. Okay? So how many of you particularly, uh, well, how many of you are familiar with complex adaptive systems? Or what Ralph Stacey calls complex adaptive processes? Have people messed around with that at all? I see a few hands going up. Okay, so those who had your hands up, what are some of the characteristics of those things? Complex, yes, Helen. Yes, so Helen says they can be predictably unpredictable. Yes, you know you can count on them, at least at some point, being, being unpredictable. Yes. What else do people recall or know about complex environments? They're ambiguous. Yes, that's for sure. Yes, Nicole. Yes, yes, so, so this notion of control, what I like to say when I'm being really provocative, uh, which I have to be careful about with a client, is control is an illusion, right? That's something we do to make ourselves feel better. It has nothing to do with what's happening or what's possible in, in the system that we're working in. So other things that I have on my list when I think about um, complex environments, they're highly sensitive to small changes. So we can do a little something here and it can have big because it's unpredictable, big knock-on ripple effects. Meaning emerges through interaction. So it's us being in relationship together that creates the meaning of these places, these systems, these work, um, workspaces that we, we operate in. And then, as I've said, difference and conflict are essential for evolution um, and change. So, Let's try to get a little practical now. How do, we, how do I make sense of all this and bring it to my work? So I want to talk about three related concepts here. 
One, how this understanding and awareness changes my relationship to time. Two, what it means for my theory of change. And three, um, I want to talk about what are for me some of the key practice elements and skills that can make me more effective in these environments. Okay? So, when we start to understand these, when we start to understand complexity in the way that we're talking about it, um, our relationship to time changes. Things that happened previously and actions yet to be taken all fade in importance when compared to what's occurring right now. And what came before and what is yet to be can only be understood in relation to this moment that we're in right now. So let me say a little bit more about some of, those, some of that. How many of you find yourselves, either personally or with your clients, regularly caught in the past, trying to assign blame for something that's already happened, right? or fantasizing about how to change something we can do nothing about because it's done? Any of us do that once in a while, anyway? Yeah. When something goes wrong, or when something goes right, for that matter, um, it seems natural for us to ask, well, how did that happen, right? But this question, delivered in the moment of disappointment or surprise, creates a backward-looking orientation. I mean, I, when, when someone asks me that question, I can almost feel myself physically turning around to look behind me. How did that happen, right? It's a very visceral kind of reaction. Um, not only that, it limits our thinking by providing a narrow frame of reference. So we stop paying attention to what's here right now, and instead we're trying to figure out the precise causes of whatever this disruption has been. So in addition, right, so not only are we limiting our thinking, but because we're in complexity and because it's unpredictable, you can be sure that whatever it was that just happened is really unlikely to happen again. So that kind of a backward exploration is a waste of time and energy. We also like to spend time thinking about the future. We can create in ourselves a sense of certainty that our series of carefully planned steps will get us easily from A to B to C to whatever that desired future is. And then what happens? Despite all of our diligent work and analysis, right, we never quite seem to quite get there, do we? Part of the problem with that is that the available choice of steps is necessarily limited by what we know right now. Right? In addition, the relationship, as, I, as we said earlier, the, the relationship between cause and effect will be nonlinear and distant in time. So as we've said, prediction is impossible. So being fixed about the actions that will lead to a given outcome in a precise sequence is an exercise in frustration. The Prussian, Prussian general, I think, von Clausewitz, people have heard of him, any, any war scholars, 
people who've read von Clausewitz. Anyway, he's, he's famously always taken out of context, right? Because he wrote a, re a lot of really dense books about warfare. He was a Prussian general in the early 19th century, I think. And um, I, what I want to do is continue that tradition of taking him out of context um, and share with you one of my favorite quotes about the unpredictability of the future. Um, he famously has said, uh, no battle plan ever withstood the first contact with the enemy. Right? Because you don't know what's going to happen after that first shot gets fired. So what do we do if looking back at the past and looking forward into the future is as problematic as it seems to be? Well, Patricia Shaw, whom some of you may know, she's a, she's a Brit, um, very experienced, very accomplished, much smarter than me, OD, OD practitioner and scholar. Um, she has a great expression for, for what we can do now. She calls us to be in the dynamic flow of actual experience. Now, people like me, who are much less eloquent, talk about being in the moment, right, or in the here and now. But it's this whole idea about paying attention to what it is that's happening here in this moment. And not for nothing, but this is a much more challenging place to be than when we focus on the past or the future. It's much more challenging. And the, the attention that it requires, which I talk about as exquisite attention, um, can lead to us being knocked off balance. How? Well, if we're accustomed to having things like goals and plans and structures handed down to us, right, or at least determined in advance, it can feel kind of wobbly to allow these things to emerge in the presence, emerge in the present, sorry, by amplifying difference. Right? Imagine yourself in those kinds of circumstances. Instead of saying, here's, here's the plan, go do it, it's no, we're not sure what the plan needs to be. Let's talk about what's happening here right now and figure out what the next step needs to be. So what I have found as a good way to regain our balance, if we get knocked off it, which we will, is to reframe some of the questions we typically ask ourselves and ask our clients to think about. So, when the temptation arises to run back into the past in, a, in an attempt to discover how did that happen, ask instead, what do we do now? When thinking about the future, it is a good idea to ask ourselves where we want to go and what do we want to be, but we need to change what we do with our responses to those questions. We need to hold them lightly, those responses, so that we can remain curious about what's going on and then adapt to what has just happened. Okay. So this reorientation that we're in the middle of talking about leads me um, to focus, it moves me to, um, for, uh, let's say that differently, it moves me from a place where change is something that we do, right, through careful planning and execution, to change as something that just is. Right, we wind up approaching change 
as if we never know what will happen next. Hence my comment at the start about always being surprised. And my favorite metaphor for this is the river. So as steady and constant as the mightiest of them may seem, we can never step into the same one twice. And another way to think about being in this constant flow of change is to realize there is no such thing as step one, step two, and step three. There's only step one. What this means in practice is that you decide what to do right now, which is step one. Watch what happens after you take that step. And on the basis of those results, decide what to do in that next right now, which of course is a new step one. It's a, it's, a, it's a subtle shift, but it's a very different way of orienting yourself to the world. What it means for us as practitioners is that we have to be open, adaptable, and willing to experiment at all times. The risk of trying to find blame for something that has happened in the past or of rushing toward a future we've already identified is that we close ourselves off to what's happening along the way. So let's get really practical about this. Um, because if this is the world we live in, it has huge implications for how we do our work. And what I'd like to do, as I said earlier, is highlight just a few things that I like to do as, as a practitioner um, that I've found helpful in various kinds of client situations. I'll say a lot more about self-awareness in a couple of minutes. But for now, let me put a few questions into the room. How do I appear? How do I want to appear? What am I observing about the impact I'm having? And am I checking how that impact aligns with my original intent? What's the work I have to do to better align my intent with my impact? Right? So let me tell a little story to illustrate this a bit. Um, I've told some of you today that I split my time between Washington, D.C. and London these days. Um, my wife lives full-time in London. And so that means she and I spend a great deal of time um, with FaceTime on our iPhones trying to be connected to each other. And even though this is the 21st century, and we're talking America and the UK, connections can still be a little bit sketchy, right? I'm seeing some nodding heads, so a few of us have had similar experiences. Well, when the signal fades or drops and we can't see or hear each other, I've learned the hard way that if I want to turn my normally um, serene and supportive wife into a version of the Tasmanian devil, all I have to say to her when the signal comes back is something like, you were gone those last two minutes, or you went away just now, rather than I couldn't hear you. To me, these kind of mean the same thing, right? But to her, she her, hears the first two statements as me making it her problem or her fault, right? So that awareness, which I've only recently come to, by the way, <laughs> after uh, two years, um, 
that awareness leads me to reconsider what, I'm, what it is that I want and what I'm doing in order to create more congruence. Right? And to keep the peace, of course, too. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. It's ways of working in complexity. Really smart guys like Edgar Schein and Peter Block have been encouraging values and practices related to humility for decades. And they've been recently joined, uh, more re they've been more recently joined by researchers like Brene Brown. I don't know if any of you have seen her books or her TED Talks stuff. She's fabulous. She's absolutely terrific. Um, these people talk about a kind of leadership that places a premium on curiosity, inquiry, and stewardship. And let's be clear about this, right? Humble does not mean shy, self-effacing, or lacking in confidence, right? It is possible to be curious and decisive, to be vulnerable and sure-footed, okay? We're back to those paradoxes, right, and internal tensions that are so important to, to keep, keep in balance. I'm going to make a statement that I want to show of hands again. Um, we don't spend enough time in our organizations in real conversation. Agreed? Yeah, that's kind of what I expected. Um, so we've all had the experience of being in a meeting where everyone is just talking past each other, right? Waiting for the current speaker to pause so they can get their piece in. Right? These are not conversations, I don't have to tell all of you, they're serial monologues. Real conversation connects directly to self-awareness and humble leadership and has less to do with a big vocabulary, clever phrasing and public speaking, and much more to do with listening and demonstrating empathy. So these practice elements have these, are, have these kinds of skills um, embedded in them, underneath them. And this is really just a, an abbreviated list because of, because of time. So emotional competence, I find, is at the center of man managing our own fear and anxieties in the face of complexities, uncertainty, and at the center of finding at least some comfort in our lack of control. I want to come to this part about presence. Because for me, it is the real difference maker in our work. Uh, and it's the, real, it's, it's the way that we can have the strongest and best um, contribution. So I'm going to talk about presence and use of self. There's a slight difference in my brain about what those two things are, but it's, it's a very minor distinction, and we don't really need to go into it for our purposes right now. Um, but to become a masterful OD practitioner, you need more than tools and techniques. The effective practitioner builds, is aware of, and is consciously able to use a full range of intrapersonal and interpersonal self-knowledge to support a group's effectiveness. So what does that mean? What does that look like um, or perhaps sound like? It's about maintaining a posture that's um, non-judgmental, open and not anxious. It allows you to draw attention to interactions, processes, and relationships. 
When you're really good at this, you can separate what you say and do from your reactions to what's happening in the room. And in, in, in a similar vein, it allows you to realize that others are having a different experience than you are right now. So um, when I talk about this, or when I think about this, there are three important aspects to the to use of self. Self-awareness, choice, and, and attending, as in what am I paying attention to right now? So self-awareness requires recognizing that what I bring to, uh, recognizes, requires recognizing that I bring preferences, predispositions, knowledge, experiences, characteristics, filters, biases, affiliations, and history. All of that comes with me into the room. And that influences what I see, what I say, and what I do at any moment in time. Some of these influences will be apparent to me and to my client or to you because they're part of what's occurring between us right now. They're out in the open. The greater portion of these things will not be apparent, maybe not even to me, because they're hidden somewhere. They're internal and hidden. As we get to know each other, the things that influence me and make me who I am have the opportunity, have the opportunity to come more into the open. That's called building a relationship. Still, and this is an important point, even as these influences become more apparent, I have to continue to monitor them for appropriateness and effectiveness. Just because something can come out in the open doesn't mean that it should. Right? So this involves choice. That's the second part of this uh, use of self process. I can choose to make any of these not yet apparent influences visible to you or not. Similarly, I can choose to make different use, different use of the already apparent influences or not. This is when it becomes evident that I'm using myself as an agent in the work that we're doing together. And if I'm not aware that these things are happening with me, my effectiveness is going to be diminished or compromised. To avoid that, I've got to pay, I've got to pay attention to what's going on with me, with you, and between us throughout the interaction. And by the way, none of this is unidirectional. I've been talking about me all this time. Well, you're in the game, too. You have your own preferences, predispositions, knowledge, experiences, characteristics, filters, biases, affiliations, and history. And not only do those things influence what you might say or do, they affect the impact of anything that I say or do. There's a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to say about uh, Dialogic OD, but it's easily enough found because I stole it from um, Jervis Bush and Bob Marshak. <laughs> so not really stealing it, I'm giving them full credit for it. <laughs> And if you haven't seen their, their textbook on Dialogic OD, I highly recommend you get your hands on it. Um, let me just say a few things, a couple of things, if I may, Paul, um, by, way, by way of conclusion. Human groups are complex systems by their very nature. Consequently, the path to a given outcome is often unpredictable and makes working in the dynamic flow of experience 
one of the most powerful things we can do. The present moment has the most to teach us, and it informs the choices we have available to us all along the way. In these circumstances, we can get stuck when we are convinced that we need to know before we decide or act. We do not have to know. We only have to be sufficiently confident and willing to pay attention to what happens when we do act. We cannot predict the best outcome. We can only see it with hindsight. If we're not aware of the possible meanings flowing from our engagement with others, with our clients, we run the risk of being carried away by our own meanings and then missing what's happening to others and the meanings they're making, making us much less effective as professionals. Thankfully, I can say that all this sounds more, sounds more involved when we talk about it than it turns out to be in practice. For us as practitioners, it means that whatever happens is the result of people being in relationship as they respond to what is going on around and within them. No one is in complete control of what happens next or the meaning that emerges from that process. We create it together. And the thing is, these kinds of outcomes hold far greater promise for success for more people than those that arise from more planned and controlled processes. And that's what I wanted to say to you today. So thank you.